This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we've packed a number of shows together to give you some highlights. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Thank you for being with us today. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell, where our guest today talk about humble beginnings. I loved hearing his story of where he came from. When he got into real estate, you're going to love the story. It's incredible. And I mean, dropping out of school, I mean, and starting probably the youngest I've ever heard starting in real estate. And so I'm going to leave it there, but his name is Ruben Isgalov. And with over a decade in the real estate industry, acquiring, flipping, developing, and financing over $500 million worth of real estate, Ruben has quickly become a renowned real estate expert, speaker, and guide for many professionals in the industry. The most successful time in Ruben's career was during the 2009 financial crisis. During this time, he bought, fixed, flipped, sold distressed properties, which showed his determination in both bullish and bearish markets, which you're going to hear him talk about today in detail. After using private money financing himself, he quickly saw the innovation desperately needed in the private lending space and decided to spearhead it by co-founding We Lend LLC, a private lending platform. So Ruben's business has grown drastically and now they even have their own debt fund, which they have launched, which we get into somewhat. And he talks about how they're navigating uncertain periods and just the crisis of 2007, eight to now. And you're going to learn a lot from Ruben today. Ruben, welcome to the show. Honored to have you on the Real Estate Syndication Show. Thank you so much for having me, Whitney. It's a pleasure. Ruben, I know you have been in real estate for some time, and I know you have done lots of fix and flipping, but now you have also launched a big debt fund, and I'm looking forward to hearing about that. I, I know other people in our space who have also done that. We have not, but so I'm looking forward to even personally learning more about that from you. But give the listeners a little more about who you are and how have you got into real estate? What's been your focus up to this point? Yeah, absolutely. So we immigrated as a family to the U.S. I'm going to go a little bit back, but back in the 90s, I was about six years old, went directly into the public education system, thought school is not for me and I shouldn't be in school. I can do other things and better things and ultimately ended up actually dropping out in high school foolishly. Well, not so foolishly because it taught me many lessons, but nevertheless, went into buying real estate at the time, flipping real estate. And all the while, I realized that although I'm doing well for myself, we're successful, we're living the American dream, education is important. So I decided to go back to school, got my undergrad, well, first got my GED, actually, then got my undergrad, and I went to law school and graduated top of my class from both undergrad and law school, surprisingly, don't know how I did that. But nevertheless, I was introduced to real estate kind of, I was about, what, 10 years old, 11 years old. My cousin was buying real estate. He was door knocking. He was doing it the old school way, literally going door to door to physically and financially distressed properties. And one day he just had this brilliant idea. He said, you know what? You're a young kid. Why don't you come door knocking and you'll probably have a much better open rate than I do. And if they open, I'll just chime in and just start speaking to them. And it worked. I think when you're 11 years old, knocking on a door, people are going to open a door kind of trying to help you out. And all of a sudden, this adult just jumped out of nowhere, sometimes spooked the hell out of them. But nevertheless, it worked for him and it worked well. But I was introduced to real estate. I was able to see what he was doing, got the taste of real estate, saw the amount of money he was making in a very short period of time. And while I was still in, I think, what, junior high school or what have you, I realized that real estate is the only way to go. So fast forward, like I said, I dropped out of high school, started flipping and then 
after law school, uh, my family and I, we decided to go to a private lender conference to find a cheaper source of capital for our own acquisitions and developments. And we walked into this private lender conference as private investors. We walked out as private lenders. We've never looked back since. Since then, we funded a little shy of $400 million in business purpose loans. These are short-term bridge loans for real estate developers and flippers. We've seen probably well over 4,000 loan applications, funded only about 1,000. So we just have a very, very high standards for underwriting and the loans that we make. That's kind of like a nutshell of who we are, what we're doing, and how we got here. Wow, that's an incredible story. That's pretty amazing. I mean, dropped out of high school, but then and got into real estate right then. And so you, you kind of sped through that part there. It's like, okay, I was in high school, I dropped out. Then I started buying and flipping real estate. I'm like, wait a minute. You know, there's not many yeah, people how did you do that? <laughs> at that age could go make that happen, right? So provide some details around that time sure. period, how you did that. Yeah, absolutely. So we come from a very, very big family. So I have a bunch of older cousins and older brother as well. So there was a lot of help and handholding on that front. A lot of introductions were made and the network was kind of established for us, but finances were tight. So it's not like we came from a rich family or anything to that effect. We lived very modest means. I say this often, we lived in a one bedroom apartment with 12 people, one bedroom, one bath. So you can imagine what that was like growing up. But Nevertheless, I mean, it brings you to very humble beginnings and doesn't allow you to ever forget that. But nevertheless, we started by flipping wholesaling properties, not even flipping that. We didn't even have the liquidity to buy it. So we started wholesaling properties. We had a niche. We knew how to find physically and financially distressed properties and connect them over to real estate investors who were able to then finish the product. You know, so that's kind of how we started with real estate. Not everyone starts with real estate as far as flipping. We started as wholesaling and then ultimately were able to build a war chest, had the liquidity and the capital to start buying real estate ourselves. Pretty amazing. It's an amazing yeah. story. I've heard a few billionaires talk about how some of the best things for children or one of the best things for children is to grow up in poverty. Oh, absolutely. I was eight years old distributing flyers on Queens Boulevard. Eight years old. Summer. That was my summers, right? I didn't get the chance to go to camp or anything like that. I didn't even have cable TV, right? So like I said, humble, humble means, humble, humble beginnings, but truly, truly grateful for the experiences I had. And it's sad because sometimes I feel like my kids don't get to see or feel what I felt and went through. So from time to time, I drive by our old apartment at one bedroom, one bath where we had 12 to 15 people living in just to show them like where we came from and make sure that they don't forget who and where we all come from. That's important. Yeah. yeah, I struggle with that as well. And thinking about that with my kids and where I came from. And yeah, it's so many lessons that almost need to be learned the hard way, you know, that <laughs> you can't reproduce <laughs> to some degree. But anyway, I'm grateful for the detail that you're willing to share because I think it's so helped to many people. But you said it was doing well for yourself, but then you decided to go back to school. Why was that? Why not stay in real yeah. estate and what you were doing? That was the 2008 crash. It really gave me a wide awakening. I was doing very well for myself. I was actually a loan originator at a mortgage office then. And literally overnight, you go from making six figures annually as a teenager, and all of a sudden you're making nothing, right? And I was sitting in my kitchen and my father walked in and he kind of saw me almost at tears. And he's like, what's going on, son? And I'm like, you know, dad, I basically kind of got laid off, right? I and mean, we shut down operations. And he kind of gave me a pep talk at that time. He said, look, you clearly were on a very, very high trajectory. I mean, you were growing and you were growing fast for a kid your age, but you were making well least. for yourself. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And he made me realize that it's okay for me to experience what I experienced back then 
not having a family, not having children, not having a wife. And then he made me realize like, look, what if that happens again? But this time around, you're going to have kids. This time around, you're going to have a wife and you're going to have real responsibilities. So he made me give him my man's word. Uh, that was literally exact wording. He said, give me your word, but a man's word that you're going to go back to school. And I did. I hesitated for about six months to a year to actually keep my word, but he made sure that I do it. So went, got my GED, went to St. John's University here in Queens, New York, and ultimately went to law school. I wouldn't say reluctantly, but definitely something that I actually look forward to because I realized the importance of education. It's not for everyone. I mean, look, there's a lot of people look at Zuckerberg, right? Look at all these amazing people who have dropped out of colleges and have done amazing. But I feel like there's some people like myself who need to learn how to actually process things, how to build things and so on. And that's why education for me was super important. I'm super grateful for that. I actually listened to my father and gave him my word. Yeah, that's incredible. It's such an amazing story. I appreciate you sharing. And even then going back to law school and top of your class. But I also wanted to highlight the technique of knocking on doors when you were 11 or your cousin. That was <laughs> clever on his part, right? It was. It was. You know, it worked. It worked. I mean, there were a lot more doors opening than for me than it was for him. So, yeah. I know you now, though, you know, you've been in the business for a while. You've grown this business and been in real estate a while, long time. And now I think one thing you say is like, don't be a landlord, be a lender, right? Well, tell me about your philosophy on that. Yeah. So, I mean, look, landlords ourselves, right? But we're also lenders. So you can hit, in my opinion, similar returns being a lender as you could being a landlord. The only difference is, is the fact that you don't have to work as hard, right? Being a lender things kind of work a little easier. Obviously, you have to know what you're doing. You're not going to get the midnight calls with things breaking or something going wrong. You're not going to have to go crazy jumping from one project to the other, managing you know, your construction guys, managing your management companies and so on. But being a lender, I mean, it's, it's in a much safer part of the capital stack. You're able to hit similar returns, but just in a much safer part of the capital stack because you're the last one in, but you're the first one out. Meaning that before you invest your money into any kind of real estate deal, the borrower, the client that you're actually lending the money to, they've done their due diligence, right? They know whether, and not only that, they already spent money on the due diligence. So you're the last one in, but you're the first one out because before they can pay out their investors, their limited partners or their co-GPs or what have you, they got to pay off your loan. And the same applies if they were to want to refinance before they refinance and cash out any liquidity that they want to cash out. The loan that you've made to them has to be paid off. So it's just a much safer part of the capital stack and it's just a much safer investment. How have you done that? How have you done that in your business? What does that look like? Yeah. So look, I mean, we started the company in 2018. That's when we walked into that private lender conference as private investors and walked out as private lenders. And we funded about, like I said, $400 million in paper today. But the way in which we started the business is literally going into our phone book. We called our friends and also our competitors who were in the business buying real estate and telling them, look, you know, we have some liquidity. We're not really trying to go crazy buying properties because there was a lot of headaches. There was a lot of competition. It's a lot of headaches, a lot of management. So we reached out to our friends and family and said, look, we know that you're buying. We know that you're a stand-up guy. We know that you're worthy of lending too. So why don't we lend your next project? And that's kind of how we grew the business. But obviously now we've grown to a point where we've grown outside of our phone book and outside of our contacts. We've grown you know, tremendously. And that's why we decided that it's time for us to actually start a fund and become a little bit more institutionalized. 
To date, you know, the 400 million that we funded, we funded with some of our liquidity, some of our family and friends' money, but also a lot of strategical partnerships with some private equity firms. But because our loan volume has grown considerably, we feel like it's time for us to actually go out there and start our own debt fund, which we've done successfully. But outside of that, I mean, look, we could have started a debt fund four years ago, five years ago, right? And the reason why we didn't is because we felt like there was a lot to learn. Just like there's a lot to learn in buying real estate, there's a lot to learn in lending against real estate. And now that we've done $400 million in loans, seen over 4,000 loan applications, funded about 1,000, currently co-servicing about 250 loans, we feel like we've definitely gained the experience, the expertise, and the knowledge to be able to go out there and deploy capital. That's awesome. Love that. How you all got in there. I mean, 400 million in loans. You said 4,000 loan applications, I think. Yeah. That's a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of work. So it's incredible. And to see that growth and the path you all took. Okay. So now you said, okay, we've gained the experience. We've done this, got all these reps under our belt. We built a team. And now it's time to go to the, you said the institutional route, I think. Yeah. Speak to the debt fund. What type of debt fund and why not continue the way you've been doing it versus launching a debt fund? So listeners, all of us can understand why you would go to the trouble to launch this type of fund. I mean, I've talked to lots of people who have done similar things and it's it's not an easy process, but speak to why you all would go that route and not just keep doing it the way you've been doing it. For sure. So it's a 506C Reg D. It's an exemption through the SEC. So we had to go through the SEC's attorneys to make sure that it's all done and done properly and buttoned up. But the reason why we actually started a fund instead of continuing to do what we did is because one, our loan volume has grown. Two, we've developed and grown into the experience that we have today. But three, we've just been getting a lot of friends and family that just been wanting to invest, right? There's a lot of people sitting on dry powder today. They either don't have the resources that many of our borrowers do in finding good deals, or they just don't have the time and they have a lot of dry powder sitting and a lot of liquidity to be able to deploy. So we've had a lot of people approaching us saying, hey, look, we know you're making these good loans. We know that you're actually doing what you're doing and you're doing it well. Can you deploy our capital for us? And I think there comes a limit as to how many investors you can take on until you actually have to start a debt fund. So we've definitely hit that limit where it was right, it was the right time at the right place for us to actually start a debt fund, for us to be able to put all the capital that we have to use and do so not only for ourselves and our family, but also for other investors. Many of our investors today, look, they're high net worth, liquid institutional kind of guys, right? They could be lawyers, they could be doctors, dentists. I mean, these are people, entrepreneurs who are just bogged down to their business. They want to be investing their capital, but they just don't have the resources to find the good deals to invest to. And they only want to invest into real estate. So we're able to provide them the solution by starting this debt fund for them to invest alongside us. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Well, as our business has grown, as we have done larger and larger deals, raising lots of money and just millions and millions of dollars from investors, but also getting debt of millions and millions of dollars, there's so many different ways to structure those pieces of a deal. And there's ways to do it correctly. There's definitely ways to do it wrong. Our guest today, actually over the next few days, has become an expert in this part of the business and many parts of the business, but he recently wrote a book just on structuring 
your deal. It's called structuring and raising debt and equity for real estate. His name is Rob Beardsley. He oversees acquisitions and capital markets for Lone Star Capital and has acquired over $350 million in multifamily real estate. He has evaluated thousands of opportunities using proprietary underwriting models and published the number one book on multifamily underwriting, The Definitive Guide to Underwriting Multifamily Acquisitions. And again, he just recently published a new book called Structuring and Raising Debt and Equity for Real Estate, which you'll hear us talk about in today's show. And then over the next couple of days, we're going to go into much more depth about this specific topic. I appreciate Rob's willingness to share just what he's learned because he has just dove in headfirst into this part of the business and underwriting and the debt and equity piece structuring. And he definitely shares a lot with us over the next few days that I wish I had known to think about years ago. But even now, it's great to hear some of this and just have a conversation about what's happening even with today's economic climate. Like, how are you structuring these pieces? What has changed? We go into that as well. I know you're going to learn a lot from Rob today and over the next few days. I hope also that you have liked and subscribed to the show. I hope you'll share it with your friends who are also in this business or investors who want to know more about the syndication business as we all try to push forward. Rob, welcome back to the show. Honored to have you on. You've become an expert in this field and man, you've written another book on it. Also looking forward to diving into that. And what I love too about both your books is that it's like short and to the point. <laughs> It's like, tell me what I need to know and tell me the helpful things that I need to know and kind of have under my belt before I start to raise money or start to structure a deal or start to think about what that should look like. And so welcome back. Yeah. Great to be here. Excited about this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Me as well. Give us a little bit about the book and maybe what prompted this book and give the listeners a little bit about, hey, what they're going to get to learn from the book as well. Because I know it's going to be important. I just, I wish I had had books like that five years ago, right? Trying to figure out some of this stuff, but give them a little insight. Yeah. Well, your point is exactly right. You and I both wish we had straight to the point books like this when we were first learning these aspects of the business, which the first book, for those that aren't familiar, was about multifamily underwriting, which is a really critical process in the business. And then this this newest book here is Structuring and Raising Debt and Equity for Real Estate. And this is a meaty topic, but somehow I was able to still condense it in just over 100 pages. That's impressive, by the way. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. So it's a passionate topic of mine because deal structure is nuanced. You can make it as simple or as complicated as you like. And it really is one of the key factors to a good deal. The way I see it is a good deal is the right price, the right structure, and the right execution. So it's one of the three pillars. And honestly, the reason why I wrote it was just simply to follow up on the first book. I felt like that the first book was something that I really wanted to do because it was a gap in the market. There was no book out there that was just a straightforward guide on underwriting. So that turned out to be a really big success and it resonated in that niche market. Obviously, not everyone's running to read a technical, boring book about underwriting, but for those that liked it, they really liked it. And so I really wanted to follow up with another really impactful book. So that was the real impetus to write it. And I felt it was a natural progression to add this deal structure topic on top of underwriting because they are connected, but it's also the second step right? After you underwrite a deal, you really need to have the proper deal structure and ability to actually raise the capital on the debt and the equity side to close. Speak to how much experience do I need to be able to understand the book? So 
That is, I'd say the biggest complaint, if there's any, about the two books I've written thus far is that it is not necessarily for a beginner. And I feel like at the end of the day, it's still very accessible to a beginner, but it's just, you're going to be having to look up certain definitions and concepts because I unfortunately don't take the time to explain everything. So I'm writing it kind of assuming that the reader is already in the space and involved and has some familiarity with the concepts, which that's just my writing style. And for me, that's just what I'm passionate about. I like to talk at that level. So sometimes I forget or just don't, it's harder for me to go and explain the simpler concepts. So yeah, that is just buyer beware on that front. But still, I think if someone's willing to take the time and invest in a book like this or a topic like this in general, then they should be more than willing to invest in some Google searches. No doubt about it. I completely agree. I just think, hey, if you're going to go syndicate a deal, you should be willing to read, you know, read this book, right? Even if you feel like it's over your head at first, when you're getting into that deal, I hope that it's not over your head by that point, right? And so, yeah, no doubt. And even then, when you start to hear these terms again and again and again, you're going to be better prepared to understand what they mean. So where can they pick it up though, by the way? Or is that on Amazon? I couldn't remember. You sent me one, by the way. Thank you very much. Yes, you're very welcome. So both books are available on Amazon. And then we also built our own website to sell the book if you want to get it at a slight discount directly from us. And you can do that at structuringandraising.com. Awesome. Uh, and just so the listeners know, Rob and I are going to do a series uh, right now over the next day or so. So uh, we're going to dive into a couple or a couple topics around structuring deals and let him explain some of those things in detail. But Rob, why don't you give us maybe an example of just deal structuring, like why is this important, kind of high level. And then over the next topic or so, we'll dive in a little more, but at least to be, again, the listeners with like, why structuring the deal correctly or the best possible scenario? You know, why is that important? You know, is it, are they not all this? I mean, obviously I, I know this, but I want the listeners to know from you, like, are they not mostly the same? I and mean, we all hear very similar structures often, but what all does that include when we're talking about the structure of the deal? Yeah. So primarily we're talking about debt and equity. And so focusing on debt first, debt is one of the most important parts of your deal because in my opinion, it's the largest source of risk. So you could buy a property at a great price and you can have a great business plan, but if you finance it incorrectly, you may be setting yourself up for a downside scenario that you are not willing to accept. And so you need to understand the implications of the debt that you're using and the risk factors of debt, which we'll get into more in later series, are the interest rate, the leverage, and the maturity or the length of the debt. And you know those are fairly simple points, but they all have a role in determining how much risk you're taking with your debt. And more debt or less debt is not necessarily always the right answer. And again, it depends on the deal. It depends on the investment goals. And that's why it takes a little bit of nuance and understanding to figure out, okay, this is the right amount of leverage because this is the sweet spot where we can still get better returns, you know, enhanced returns through the debt, but yet we're not putting ourselves into a certain risk territory that we're not comfortable with. So that is the first thing. There's a lot of variation on debt as far as fixed rate versus floating rate, short-term debt versus long-term debt, recourse versus non-recourse, and other bells and whistles that you're going to want to be aware of as you go into your deal. And this is true whether you're on the passive side or the active side. You know, Certainly, you'd hope that you'd have a good understanding of this 
as an active investor, but as a passive investor, you want to be familiar at least with these concepts. So that way, when you're presented with a deal opportunity, you know what you're getting into. You don't want to be surprised. Yeah. One thing I meant to ask you as well, especially with like the series of books, should we read the first one first? Is that important that before we read the structure, you know, about structuring, should we read about underwriting first? That's a good question. Actually, nobody's asked that yet. It's and not mandatory. I don't think it's necessary, I'll say. It was written with that kind of idea in mind, right? The first step is underwriting. The next step is putting the deal together. But they are completely separate topics. So if, yeah, they can be totally read on their own. Complimentary as well, though. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Helpful to understand both. No doubt about it. What about any actionable just advice that comes from the book that a listener can expect you know, as they read or maybe you know, as they're looking at a project now? Is it too late to read the book if we've already got a deal under contract? Interesting. Well, if you already have a deal under contract, you know it may make sense just to brush up on those different debt concepts that we just covered and debt options just to sanity check your deal and see, okay, are we using the right debt with the right terms? Have we negotiated the right deal or are we leaving money on the table by not pushing certain buttons on the lender's term sheet to get ourselves the best deal? And it can be non-economic. You know, there are certain things that you want to be aware of that you want to negotiate for, such as, I mean, getting really into the weeds. I talk about lockbox accounts in the book, and I talk about how a lender will sometimes require you to funnel your rents into a, a separate account that you don't control. And obviously, you don't want that. It's costly and it is burdensome on your asset management team. So, to the extent that you can recognize that ahead of time and negotiate that early up front, you can possibly get that removed from the terms of the deal. So yeah, I think if you're under contract, there's some still some things you get out of the book to make sure that the deal is good. And on the equity side, it's never too late to just double check to see if your deal structure is in line with the market. Everybody's syndication structure or equity structure may differ a little bit, but in my opinion, you don't want to differ too much away from the market because standing out can just be negative. Even if you're too cheap, it can still be perceived as a negative because people think, oh, well, this person is offering their deal at a really cheap deal structure, cheap fees or cheap waterfall. Something must be wrong here. So making sure that your deal structure is in line with the market, I think is important as well. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today.